Carnivorous couch, it happens once a week. It swallows us for two hours when we try to sleep. It forces us to watch a film about which we then speak. Carnivorous couch with Brady and Rob. Hey everybody, hey everybody, hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Carnivorous Couch, the film where we do a film a week-ish. Yes. It's just, it, it's, it's not a film though. It's a spoiler full podcast, that's what it is. We're not a film. It's better as a podcast. Exactly. We should be a podcast. But we do a film a week from two film geeks. Uh, which are, and we are the film geeks. Yes. There's Brady over there. I am one geek. And Rob over here. And this week we did uh, 1967's Terrence Young film, Wait Until Dark. Audrey Hepburn, Oscar nominee. Yes, very much so, very much so. Do you want to say a couple words about it, Brady? Because I realize I'm really loud and you're fine. Do I want to say a couple words about the film? Yes, while I walk over here and make an adjustment. Well, uh, you know, it's part of Hepburn's uh, big 60s, of course. It's the same decade that she has uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's. And um, even though she's not nominated for this, she is part of a Best Picture winner uh, known as My Fair Lady in the 60s. And so, yeah, and in fact, what George I did... Pappard was in this, right? Pappard was not in this. Pappard was not in this. Pappard was in Breakfast at Tiffany's. What about Jean-Luc Pappard? Jean-Luc Pappard. Uh, you know, I don't know enough about Pappard yet to say, but he's a little sleepy, I find, George Pappard. Oh my God, on, on a total tangent note, I was um, at uh, brunch with my parents and girlfriend today. And, and George Pappard. And um, <laughs> my dad asked for, or my mom asked for the salt and pepper, and... I couldn't but but just hear Patrick Stewart going, Introducing Salt and Pepper! (laughs) (laughs) This is one of my favorite moments in SNL history. Okay, wait until dark, wait until dark, wait until dark. Okay, well, it's getting dark. It's almost dark. Yeah. I think we can start talking about wait until dark. Yeah, we we take titles very literally around here. (laughs) (laughs) Wait until dark, man. You're in a smoke now. <laughs> okay. Um, well, let me see. You're going to have to help me with the character names because I tried to do it. But you're going to make me plot synopsize this movie that's got a lot of like double entendre, different characters knowing different things. But, 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 it's going to be hard to plot size, but plot synopsize. But that is what we start with here at Carnivorous Couch. So, well said. Well there's said. a man making a doll in the opening scene. And he's sewing some heroin into it. Like you While do. this girl, Lisa, smokes a blunt. Uh, well, it looked like a blunt. Is that what you <laughs> Probably a cigarillo <laughs> or something like that. Um, and the doll still plays music. And Lisa goes to the airport and gets on a plane, flies from Canada, to- tosses some man some... Oh, did she toss... She tosses him some something. Now I'm thinking it's probably money. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, um, is that Sam that she's getting on the plane with? Yeah, that is Sam. It took me a minute to put that together once Sam is introduced that that was him. Um, But sometimes I'm slow on these things. Yeah, it's confusing because basically... And he really just looks like a a man. A 60s man. (laughs) A haircutted man. Yeah, no, and he's going to have to go... um, 
I guess he... I didn't quite figure out what she was to him. I guess she was just getting on the plane next to him. She gets through customs. She yeah. gives him the doll and says, hey, can you give this? We don't really know what's going on. Yeah, she finds a mark, you know. She's like, this guy, I can use this guy. Yes. So we're going to note who this person is, and uh, I'm going to get my, my cohorts on the other time to get the doll from him somehow or something like that. Yeah, and, and all of this is um, we're hearing Henry Mancini's music, but we're not hearing any dialogue. This is the, the opening credits. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually still confused about the plot, but I'll just keep going with what I saw. Yeah. Um, okay, so she hands it off to uh, the Sam guy played by Richard Crenna. Um, oh, no, no, Sam is a Zimbalist. Oh, okay. Uh, Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. Got it. Uh, yes, because Richard Crenna, I'm going to keep calling John Senna. Um, <laughs> Yeah, Richard Crenna plays uh, Mike Talman. Oh, okay. A He's cop. Mike. Cool. So, she, okay, already far into the plot synopsis, but not having discoursed much plot. Um, so, Sam goes here. We cut to the next scene. It's unclear to us that time has passed, but time has passed at this point. They do this throughout the film. They do not use dissolves to represent time passing, which confused me a little bit. Um, yeah. But I think it's supposed to mislead you and so forth. Um, now, three, uh, two criminals are meeting one criminal in an apartment that's supposed to be Lisa's with a typed note on the drawer, on the door. Uh, they show up, and um, oh, you're right. He's I misspoke. Mike Tallman is not a cop. You're right. He's also a a con artist. The Wikipedia plot says yes, as well as uh, his uh, friend Carlino played by Jack Weston, is also a con artist. Yes, and those two con, ar- con artists meet uh, Alan Arkin, who's uh, referred to throughout the movie as... Um, Rote? Rote, yes. So anyway, um, Rote has a knife, they have knives. The weapon of choice is knives. Everybody says, put your weapon on the table. Rote refuses and kind of dominates the situation. And then Mike, being very smart, searches around and goes, uh, well, did you check the closet? And the guy's like, yeah. Nothing in there but clothes. He's like, how do you know? It's locked. It's like, the key's on the top there. He's like, no, it's not. I think he made a mistake. And then so they kind of subdue him mm-hmm. and then get the key from him, unlock the thing, and there's a dead woman in there. It's the dead woman from the opening. Yes, it's the woman who put, who got the cocaine put into, or got the heroin put into the doll. Ah. So... <laughs> Wait, do you remember her name? Is it Lisa? Lisa. Right? Yeah, Lisa. Uh, Liciano. Um, but they call her Lisa. But later she's called Liciano. Yeah. Um, at any rate, um, they find the body of Lisa in the closet. Now they negotiate a higher price and they're going to somehow find this doll. Yeah, because the one thing that you skipped that I'll just say is important is uh, Arkin wrote, turns the tables back on them because they think they're going to just walk away. He's like, Actually, your fingerprints are all over this place, and I was very smart and only touched my cigarette and this chair handle, which I can now wipe down. Uh, so he kind of blackmails them into being part of this uh, scheme to get the doll. Yes, so they request more money, they got, and they got their, what, 500 apiece in advance? Mm-hmm. And so cool, um, they're going to do this thing. Now mm-hmm. they find out that this apartment belongs to... Somebody else, they're like, oh, apparently it belongs to this Sam guy. And like uh, this woman that's in this picture here. And so time passes again. 
Well, actually, the woman comes home. Yeah, Audrey Hepburn. Yes. The lead of the movie. Susie. Susie, who she, is a blind woman. She is a blind woman, and so they're all still in the apartment, and she's like, Gloria's here, and we don't know who Gloria's is. It turns out Gloria's a little girl who she's been having some trouble with because Gloria's in a bit of a, a tumultuous family and a bunch of shit going on there, kind of her ward. Yeah, she's like a latchkey kid. She's a teenager, and I guess she has feelings for Susie's husband, Sam. You know, in that teenage crushy kind of way. That was mentioned, but I think that was more just Susie feeling crappy about her and, like, painting those beliefs about uh, her onto her. She's okay, like, maybe. She's trying to steal my husband away. Some projecting. Because yeah. then she enters, I'm like, she is a kid kid. Yeah. So at any rate, uh, she's like, Gloria, I know you're in here and you're just fucking with me. And that's the presence of the, these three criminals. And yeah. she goes outside and talks to her neighbor, and then time passes. She's hanging out with Sam back in the apartment. Those guys are gone. There's a report on the radio that Lisa's body was found. And uh, so they're all like, ah, oh, shit, blah, blah, blah. And yeah. this doll is in the apartment somehow. Sam's a photographer. He's got to go do a job in Asbury Park, New Jersey. Uh, and she's like, oh, please, like, there's a murder that just was announced. Can't you stay with me? But he can't do it. Yeah. So then Mike, one of the criminals, comes in. His name's probably not Mike, but he's referred to as Mike throughout the entire movie. Uh, he leaves a cigarette in the thing with some fire. We, mm-hmm. It's clear that he's probably planted this so that when she comes home, she goes, oh, no, there's a fire, and she calls 911, and then he comes to her rescue and sort of ingratiates himself to her. Mm-hmm. So now this whole time, Mike, one of the criminals, gets to talk to her and kind of lead her and get information as they need it and so forth so he can yeah. manipulate her. He poses as uh, like a school chum yes. uh, I was coming to Sam. I was come, coming calling to Sam. I haven't seen him in a long time, but he saved my, my ass in the war and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Um, so, yes, uh, all of that happens, and... Then she's all worried about this murder that happened down the block, because that's the woman, and so forth and so on. She doesn't know where the doll is. Nobody knows where the doll is. Theoretically, Sam has the doll at work, or something like that. We don't know what's going on about all those things. Um, Then, so, this whole thing happens where the Thorpe... What's his name? Who? Uh, Not Mike. Oh, Carlino? Not Carlino. Wrote. Wrote. I keep... <laughs> I've written it down a bunch of times, but no, I spelled okay. it like H O. We got him. R H O T E is the way I spelled it for whatever reason, so I keep thinking Thorpe for some reason. Um, at any rate, oh yeah, Thorpe is just. It's almost an anagram. Okay, <laughs> my brain. Um, <laughs> my brain. So, um, any rate, they have. Wrote run in and pretend to be this old man who's like looking for something that he needs to get from somebody who doesn't exist, Sam something else, mm-hmm. a different Sam, like Sam Bink or something. Um, and then so she calls the police and they have Carlino, one of the other criminal, come in and pretend to be the police so that they can kind of like get this information. And they, yeah. s- they manipulate her into spending this whole thing that they think that Sam has the doll, and because of that, that was a motive for Sam to murder this woman. Right. And so she's all freaked out, going like, the cops are after Sam. I need to protect Sam. Yeah. I can't call Sam. Can't, Sam can't come here, bada, bada, bada. Yeah, they're all con men, and the con is get this woman to feel that she needs to give us this doll to exonerate her husband. Yes, and one of the tools that's used to do that is 
uh, Rote comes back as the old man's son and does an impression of this and kind of spins a yarn in order to make all this seem true that, that the woman is his wife. Yeah. And so forth. And my so, father thinks your husband was sleeping around with my wife. Yeah, this is probably the most... Uh, boring plot synopsis for people because it's really hard to say all this stuff and have it make any sense because when you're watching it, it's confusing to the viewer as well, which is actually one of the boons of the movie. And it's like, it truly is. You really uh, identify with Audrey Hepburn's character, Susie, for that reason. Yeah, they're, they're trying to manipulate and gaslight her and confuse her. And it, it's the kind of movie that like really drips information bit by bit by bit at you. Yes. So, um, Mike has ingratiated himself uh, to her. He's like signaling Carlino by moving the blinds and this and that. And Carlino's mm-hmm. signaling Thor-Rote uh, by moving the lines, the blinds and, and so forth and so on. Um, I'll just kind of gloss over it and keep going forward because I think it's uh, probably less... Watch the movie. <laughs> <laughs> we told you last week that we were going to do it this week, so you had ample notice. And last week was actually several months ago, so you had ample, 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 ample notice. <laughs> At any rate, um, Gloria comes in. Gloria's kind of that latchkey kid and this and that, so she is... She's a little brat yeah, <laughs> at first. I mean, I will get into these theories and stuff that I have later, but uh, because of the abandonment and this and that, uh, Gloria has emotional regulation problems and is kind of being shitty, but then also... She's almost like a classic borderline where she flips from being crazy and throwing shit and breaking shit to like being very heartfelt and be like, I'm sorry, you're beautiful. Yeah, they they have, I guess, a little breakthrough moment in their relationship. Yes, but I'll I'll get more into like the various different psychological ailments I think each of these characters have. Um, (laughs) You're the the wife from American Splendor. (laughs) Exactly. I can point to anyone. Um, At any rate... um, so Susie's trusting Mike for the most part. Um, at a certain point in time, um, she finds out that uh, Gloria has the doll. There is no police car. This man is not a police officer. Uh, Gloria helps her find that out. The police sergeant isn't police sergeant after all. At this point, she starts to put things together and going like, oh, I'm being manipulated. And so she starts trying to manipulate them. Um, uh, yeah, there is a point where the the tables are turning. Um, she still thinks the police are after her husband, though. She hasn't quite put it all together up until up until that point. Yeah, I guess so not. So she doesn't want to call her husband and have her husband come home. Um, right, and what she does is she puts together that the number Mike leaves her with is the number of the phone booth outside by having Gloria spy on the phone booth. Like she says, you know, Keep looking at it, and if there's anything unusual, don't actually call me, call me, but just let the phone ring twice as a signal. Right. So, at any rate, uh, Gloria gives her the doll. They hide the doll under the stairs. The sergeant's Mm -hmm. coming back. Um, This is where Audrey Hepburn starts to, like, kind of have a little control and power over the situation. The guy comes in, and uh, Gloria has, I mean, Susie has Gloria hide with the doll. Then she misdirects him into the um, uh, bathroom to check a window that some kids had theoretically broken. He's like, nothing's broken in here. And in this moment, Gloria sneaks out with the doll. She's got the doll in a bag. She talks to, uh, well, she eventually gets it out of there. 
um, that's later yeah, on. Yeah, and is it also like that she gets to see what Carlino looks like, uh, but very importantly, Carlino doesn't see Gloria, right. which comes into play later. And she offers to sell him cookies that are in the bag, but actually yeah. the, the doll is in the bag. Because she has to sneak past him, so it's, it's very Oh, wait, vital. no, no, sorry, the doll isn't in the bag. The doll's in the apartment the whole time. She just yeah. moved the hiding place of it. That's right. Ah, uh, yeah. No, Gloria eventually is sent out to uh, bring Sam home. Yes. I should note another plot device is that there's a safe that they don't have a key to that's in there, and the criminals are certain that the doll is in the safe, and they're trying to manipulate Susie into opening the safe and giving them the doll. Susie really means it when she cannot open the safe. It's just left over from the previous tenant. Yeah, it's just an old safe. It actually does not really come into play except as, uh, you know, as obfuscation. It's the place where they think the yeah, thing it's, is. It's, uh, yeah, it confuses them. And they never open it. Right. No, they never open the safe. It's one of those things that's... A red herring, I guess. Well, it's, it's a, uh, what do you call it, uh, gun on the wall uh, in the first act. Ah. Oh, well, I mean, it's the opposite of a Chekhov's gun. It's a Chekhov's gun on the wall that never goes off. (laughs) That's exactly the point I'm trying to make, but I couldn't come up with the reference. Um, Chekhov's safe. Chekhov's safe that never gets opened. Um, So It's not my safe. At this point, um, Mike and Carlino decide to kill Rote. Yes. Mike is hanging out with, uh, with Susie, who has now figured out that Mike is also not to be trusted. Yeah, all the cards are mostly are on the table now. Mike stopped trying to pretend he's a cop. He's like, all right, look, and look now we're just going to strong arm you. Like, give me the doll. Give, give, me, the give doll. me the doll. Give me the doll. But what happens instead is we see the scene where Carlino is killing Rote. But Carlino didn't kill Rote. Rote killed Carlino. With a car. Yes. And then Carlino um, uh, is dead. <laughs> and Rote comes back and kills Mike. Carlino killed by one third of his namesake. <laughs> he was yes. hit. He was hit by a Carlino. Sorry, I thought we were trying to go with the Christine <laughs> reference that I made during the movie. <coughs> okay, so um, at this point, uh, she knows that they're coming, and so she plans for it. She gets some of the developing chemicals of her photographer husband out, basically mm-hmm. acid, I guess. Puts uh, it in a flower vase, a yes. flower pot. And uh, she's, she's ready for him. She smashes all the light bulbs because she can't see, so pff, now neither can they. Zatoichi, yes. blind swordsman. She's going to make sure that you have to fight her on her turf. Yes, she evens the playing field this way. She does. Um, so then Mike comes in. Mike gets stabbed by uh, Rote, who comes in after him. And Rote is kind of hip to it, and he brings a can of gas and some matches. So he douses the whole place in gasoline. Uh, at a certain point in time before this, I skipped the phone line has been cut. Phone line has been uh, cut. Which uh, is another moment where she loses control, and this is where she decides to take control. That's what happened. Um, at any rate, he douses the place in gasoline, and he's got the matches. So then she... What does she do? Um, well, she... Oh, yes, she's got the flower vase full of acid. She says, are you looking at me? And he goes, yes. Because this is after she's given him the doll. He's cut it open and got the heroin out. Yes. And then she throws the acid in his face, is able to crash out the one uh, photographer's light that is set up at this point. So now mm-hmm. we're back in the dark, and then she has the matches, and the whole place is doused in gasoline. And she's doused him in gasoline. Yes. 
So now she's got the matches and she's lighting them and telling him what to do and so forth and so on. And she gets to the door, but she can't get out the door because he has chained it shut and it's too much for her to negotiate uh, in her frantic state and also be blind. Yeah, and uh, um, as I was looking, kind of what happens in that scene also is that Rote figures out a way to get a little power back by opening the refrigerator, which has a light. So now he's got a light source again. It's like, aha, you can't smash this. Yes, well, he gets his knife back from her. He does. And then she, um, yes, is able to uh, kind of negotiate him around the place. And then when she gets to the door, she can't open it. And that's when he opens the fridge. So then he opens the fridge. He's able to uh, creep up on her. But she... uh, kind of plays possum and goes like, I, you, you've got me and stuff like that. But she took a knife from the kitchen yeah, well, knife he was, block. Well, he was looking at the doll. She's stolen a butcher knife or yes. whatever. So she, is, so she stabs him when he manipulates her. And then she's going back. She's trying to close the fridge door, but he's pinned it open by putting a bunch of shit in the way. Mm-hmm. And uh, so she's pinned herself behind the door. He's bleeding out from her stabbing him, but he's trying to get her. Yeah. And then so she's pulling the plug on the refrigerator to make the light go out. Which was a thing introduced early on before Sam leaves that she doesn't know where the plug is. And he's like, can you like show me? He's like, figure it out yourself. Yeah. Um, that was the thing that was introduced. Also, she knows that he opened the refrigerator because the fan is jammed because it needs to be defrosted. Mm-hmm. So when he opens the refrigerator, she can hear the fan spinning and jamming. And so she knows... And that's probably a detail, just digression, because we're almost done with the plot. That's probably a detail that would be lost on many people, unless you've, like, lived in a house with a refrigerator and stuff and had to defrost it. But, yeah, refrigerators will stop working and and put a bunch of water on the floor and stuff like that because because the thing... I don't know how old you guys are, listeners, but I've dealt with this at several houses, and I've become a master of figuring out how to defrost fridges, which is basically just taking all the shit out of there and unplugging them for the afternoon uh, or overnight. Um, But yes, if your fridge is making a sound when you open it, that's the fan being blocked by a bunch of ice and stuff that's junked up in there. Unplug your fridge for a little while. Yeah, so that's a cool detail because opening the fridge, that's what gives rote the power back by letting him see again uh but it gives her a little bit of power too at least so he's bleeding out coming for her she's pinned herself behind the refrigerator door as some protection and then she pulls the plug the lights go out now all this dramatic irony that's going is turned around on the audience and the audience now does not know what happens because she can't see he can't see and neither can we Uh, yeah we do not see the very last moments of the showdown yes and we were watching this uh, with my girlfriend, Audrey, in tow, and I had said to her that I was going to look this up, but I didn't. I looked it up. You did? Okay, yeah. cool. Uh, this is based on a Broadway play, and I was thinking, most likely, and Brady will tell me if I'm right or wrong here after I, 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 after I tease it, uh, that in the Broadway play, there is no closing after that. It goes black. We don't know what happened. Now, in this film, Sam comes back with the cops. They show up. They find that Audrey Hepburn has succeeded in shielding herself with the door and Rote has bled out. Now, in the Broadway play, I bet you they have a little more leeway than they did in the movies because movies were regulated and they never wanted to make it ambiguous as to whether or not the bad guy won. Mm -hmm. Brady, did it happen that way in the play? Uh, It happens the exact same way in the play. Damn it! (laughs) (laughs) They... 
you know, it's a happy ending. The, the, the blind lady that we all like does survive. Okay, the writers of the play and the writers of this. What the fuck, pussies? You, you limp-dicked <laughs> sentimentalists. <laughs> Sometimes you gotta kill a blind lady to make good art, man. <laughs> well, okay, good. I'm glad we're not in a totally... Uh, place where we can't say anything uncouth because <laughs> i like saying uncouth things sometimes everybody knows i'm joking i don't really i don't really think they're limpic pussies <laughs> no no actually i i prefer this ending in the context of what the story is i'm glad i'm glad she lives <laughs> but it would have been interesting. no i'm glad she lives too i would just like to like it to be ambiguous and be like no okay this was made in 1967 i bet you if it was made in 1972 they would have just let it cut to black uh, maybe that's where you the seventies is where you get ambiguous film endings. That's a, a dark, emotionally hungover decade. Yeah, like French connections. Well, well, well. How did I do, Brady? What's the timing say on that there screen? I can't order? really see my eyes. It's at bad. the top. Okay. Yeah, I can't see either because my eyes are also bad. We're this is forty people. Let's do that next <laughs> week. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay. So the next thing that we do. In this film podcast is this one. Hey, 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 how do we like Brady, it? Brady, how did you like this movie? It's, it's quite a great movie, yeah. It's fantastic. It really is. I can, um, I yeah, can see why Tess likes it so much. I can too. Um, it is probably a great movie to study uh, for a lot of filmmaking reasons, uh, which we can get into. But yeah, I, I mean, what's great is it's... Like I was saying, it's the IV drip. It's classic IV drip storytelling where every little bit of information changes the temperature of things, changes kind of the, the narrative reality. Like this woman, there, there are rules that govern her. She can't see, obviously. And then every little piece of information she gets or often misinformation is going to affect her ability to navigate this survival situation. Um, and it does that very well. It's, it just keeps adding things that kind of slightly mutate and change the stakes and the, yeah, the reality of, of how she, what she needs to do to get out of this situation. Uh, so as an example of that kind of storytelling, it is superlative. Um, it's just a great thriller. It really is a great thriller. Um, and then toward the end, just like really, really inventive uses of uh, sound design. Yes, um, there's a lot of, well, I mean, there's great sound design throughout, right? Like, even at the there beginning, is. when the three criminals are hiding in the audience, or hiding in the audience, <laughs> hiding in the apartment. Mike's sitting next to me. <laughs> Who are you, man? <laughs> Don't worry about that. Well, they do a, like, she walks around the thing and makes noises like a normal person. Yeah. Now, I mean, if you know a little bit about filmmaking, um, it wasn't really highlighted in Babylon because they didn't quite know how to do film as yet, but right. um, pretty much every footstep you hear, every door slam you hear, everything but dialogue in um, filmmaking is <laughs> added afterwards. All the sound effects are added afterwards. You don't, right. uh, you know, somebody sets a cup down on a table. Uh, it would be ideal that that's not picked up by the mic. Sometimes it is, and they just remove it. But you set a cup down on a table, record it, and then use the sound. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so they were doing this at this time, I'm almost certain, because it's way past 1920. So they're being very quiet. They're not breathing. So 
in the, the diegetic, diegesis, diegetic. As far as diegetic sounds that they're creating, there's nothing because the sound design is all made for her, but she can sense the presence of them. Like, right. And they don't even put her in a situation where they kind of like fuck up and make some noise in this like very early scene when they're all in there. And it's tense because it's like, oh, well, it's part, of, it's part of the thing. So this is some, yes, I agree. I like the sound design. And I guess we're okay. getting into a, <laughs> a, um, way more how to do it. Letter grade, Brady. Uh, let me go A minus for now. I'm going to sit with it though. But they're yeah. really great, strong. But so yes, sound design. I guess. Um, okay, one. I really like this movie. One of the things I like about it is something I was about to just get into off that launching pad from your thing, which is, it is a large leap of faith to bring the audience into. It's just like. Oh, you're kidding me. This like blind woman walks into her house and she just doesn't know that there are three guys standing there. So that sound design really helps with that. Um, sort of mm -hmm. like in the next scene after they're gone, after the dead body's been found and but about been planted somewhere else and found by the police and so forth. Um, she talks about how Gloria's moved the furniture and made her trip over and blah blah blah. And so like it just kinda leads us into more and more uh, that leap of faith that you have to take, which is because you, you know it's hard to believe. Um, I've never been blind, so I don't know, but <laughs> it's hard to believe that somebody would walk into their apartment and just not. You know when somebody's fucking there. <laughs> uh, yeah, I hear you. I and guess I, the I thought, way the like, story. Oh, they smell the cigarette that he was smoking. Yeah. But then she thought Gloria was sneaking the cigarette. So she rationalized it, and it really leads you into that suspension of disbelief I expertly. Mean, and the story, I guess, also justifies it by letting us know that she's a, a very recent blind person. So maybe her, you know, her other senses haven't sharpened yet. To, to the level of someone who's been blind their entire life. Or maybe the, that whole idea is just a myth. <laughs> I mean, no, I don't think it is. Like, I, I do think people do get their other senses sharpened when one is removed. But, um, but yeah, as she says, she's trying to be a world champion blind girl, but she's not there yet. Which is what gives the story suspense. Indeed. Um, so, yes, I like that. I like the, um, as you said, the trickling of information... Um, but I like the fact that it plays both on uh, the dramatic irony uh, for us. We know what's going on sometimes when the characters don't. Yeah. Other times, uh, we think the characters know something that we don't know because they're acting as if they do. Yes. Because they're trying to confuse the other characters. Right. And then, you know, as time goes on, it turns out nobody knows anything, and then we see the characters figure things out, and then there's more dramatic irony because we know that this character knows stuff that they're not letting on that the other character doesn't yeah, it, know. It is very sophisticated in that yeah. way. It's a lot like, um, it, I mean, I started thinking of it in terms of, uh, Tarantino loves to talk about this and kind of like, there's a director's <laughs> commentary on true romance where he talks about how he wrote it uh, out of sequence, much like Pulp Fiction, where like in the first scene, we know nothing and the characters uh, know everything, uh, except for the protagonist in that movie, Clarence yes. and blah, blah, blah. And then... After that, we catch up to mm -hmm. what they don't know, and then at the end, they catch up to it. So, you know, it's, it's a, a thing in storytelling, especially people who are film buffs and like to use the medium. Right. Um, 
and I mean, it can be a things in play as well, but it, there's a lot of things you can do in film medium uh, with dramatic irony in which the audience or the characters know something that the other does not. Mm-hmm. Like, for instance, in this, um, when uh, they're using the blinds to signal each other, the criminals are. Right. Um, Mike never does it, so she never catches on, but she knows that... Uh, he does do it at some points, though. Um, I think, think Thort, uh, um, wrote, Young wrote, does it. And um, uh, I'm going to say this. She tells he, Mike, like, "Oh, uh, why is everybody fiddling with the blinds? It's uh, it's winter time." Right. Um, the the police uh, chief did it too, and so did Rote. Yeah. So here's what I'm going to say because maybe I am, she didn't notice. Mike I'm did for it. sure on this that Mike does it, and so I'm wondering in that scene. Here's my read. Oh, Carlino's in the room though, so maybe she thought it was him. At this point, I don't think he... Oh, I mean, that's... No, but there's definitely a point where only Mike is in the room and he's doing it. Mm. And he's like, I'm doing blind dance. Um, but um, I wonder if it's not kind of like a, a self-delusion because the... She wants to believe Mike is yeah, good. Yeah, she, she really needs to believe Mike is good. Otherwise, she's like really in the scary, shitty situation that she actually is in. Um, and that's kind of like the final shoe to drop when she learns that, like it radically changes the tone of the film and of you know she realizes now she is in a survival situation. Yeah, but uh, so another thing that they do with that, so we think that they're doing something that she doesn't know about, mm-hmm. and then she reveals to us that they do that she does indeed know and she did indeed notice. Yeah, and she knew that uh, Carlino was wiping the fridge for prints or whatever he was doing. Yeah, she's like, is it dusty in here? <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, so all those things. Um, so yeah, they play with this sort of information dole out um, situation quite a bit as well. Um, cool. Monitor was just going on and off there, so I got distracted. Uh, so good. I love the way they do that. I love the way the music works. I noticed, uh, like, kind of like, you know, when the criminals are doing their thing in the beginning, you have this really out of tune thing, and I wanted to mm-hmm. nudge Brady and be like, they're out of tune. They're in the wrong key with each other. Um, <laughs> but I prefer that. I don't like being in the right key. You know? So it starts off as sort of like motif, yeah. um, which is like, oh, this is the criminal motif, and then mm-hmm. there's, you know, just sort of. Uh, Harmonious, although, you know, just crescendo-y, like, uh, symphonic music that's like, dun-dun-dun, but, it, you know, it's in, yeah. it's in harmony with itself instead of being, like, desperately uh, tritone or ninths or something like that. Yeah. Um, but what I noticed is that those motifs follow the control of the character. Mm-hmm. So when uh, she gains control, that kind of the harmonious music... Uh, even if it's alarming music, comes up and is like, oh, she's in control. And then when the criminals are in control, it's like... So, yeah, that was neat. I like uh, that. And I like the fact that this is basically a uh, primitive technology techno-thriller. Where yeah. They're just using all these technologies. Um, techno thrillers usually focus on like high tech. You know, like Enemy of the State is a classic techno thriller. Uh, techno thrillers was a class I took in film school from the late great uh, David Crane. Also, he's not late and great because 
hopefully he's still alive. I love, I love that man. So, uh, didn't mean, I just said late great for no reason. Because it's fun. <laughs> Rhymes are fun. Late great and also still living. Um, <laughs> he's late for something. Well, what about that term, late great? Um, people just say it like, you know, it's 20 years before the person died. They say, yeah, yeah, the late uh, George Harrison wrote this in 1972. Oh, yeah, because well, he's late now. <laughs> but he was early then. If that makes sense. Exactly. Makes no sense. Anyway, um, my critique of the Queen's English aside. But um, so you're saying they're high-tech techno-thrillers, and you're telling me that refrigerator lights aren't high-tech? Well, like, light bulbs and stuff, okay, that's, you know, you just go, like, <laughs> light technology, but, like, blinds? Yeah. Like, using that, uh, the fact that knives are the weapons of choice, like, it's not guns. It's simple so we're not, tools. Yeah, simple tools. Um you know, she sends uh, messages by banging on the pipe. Uh, yeah. Um, she uh, has Gloria send a message to her that she got away okay by dragging uh, an umbrella across the bars. Yeah. You know, um, you know, matches. Yes, technically that's technology, but a lot of people wouldn't think of that in, in the way... Ring twice with the phone. Yes, like, the phone, the phone is like, yes, very much... A, but anyway, all these tools and stuff that are uh, available, this puts this into the class of uh, techno-thrillers, even though it's not like high-tech uh, sound bugs and satellite imagery and stuff like in uh, Enemy of the State. Yeah, that's, that's interesting because, like, the bad guys are using the phone in the normal phone way against her, you could say. Like, you know, they're using it to, to plot and confuse her. And when she's using the phone most of the time, she, like, removes the actual phone part of it it's not a phone to her, it's just this thing that makes this noise, and that noise can be a signal for her to use. So, like, it, you're right, it is really, like, about boiling, you know, uh, and right down to that scene where she's smashing all the lights, about removing technology from the techno-thriller, making things as rudimentary as possible, because in her, in her reality, like, it's simple is better. Yes. So that's another thing I like about it. This movie is an A for me. I, I find it to be more suspenseful and like the moments where you know, Audrey, Audrey Hepburn just like cries out loud because she's so frustrated about all this control that's being taken away from her. Mm -hmm. I find that like more disturbing than, you know, like a slasher film where it's just like, oh, much oh more. She's, she's, got, uh, she's got big boobs and she's hiding and when's the guy going to stab her? This is like, that is not nearly as like crushing as just this woman falling apart because yeah <laughs> not that i like to see women fall apart i'm just saying that like it's more terrifying um <laughs> you really sort of the way that the information is taken away from us that there's no dissolves in uh when in the passage of time it's just a cut which is sort of disorienting you're like wait is this happening right now did this just happen like, yeah and um, see that to me is um it gives us empathy with the character so when yeah. she experiences the trauma of all this we do too yeah, it, and that is why I think, for me, the movie needs the happy ending, because <laughs> the way like she is crushed and gutted throughout this thing, if it doesn't have that, it becomes like a, a Lars von Trier movie, or, or a Michael Haneke movie, just like, so, so black. Well, yeah, because her triumphs aren't really triumphs to her. Like, yeah, she's taking control and stuff like that, but she's still fucking distraught when she's taking control. Yeah, so, she suffers a lot. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's how we liked it. You got A minus, I got A. It's really great. Yeah, this is a great movie. Uh, 
Should we run away and do understudy? Yeah. Okay, hey, just, uh, just play that music there. Just play that music. We're so sorry we couldn't get the actors to do the scene from this screenplay, but we've got two understudies, and to be honest, they're probably more famous anyway. So try to guess the actors, try to guess the movies. Tweet us at C A R N Y Couch. This game called Understudy is happening, happening, happening right now. Yeah, what do you think, Jack? You think uh, if you can find all the driver's teeth, they'll give you another metal man? Jesus. Yeah, 20 second delay on the dead man's stick. I'm in the air duct when it blows. Do you think I wouldn't have prepared? I spent two years setting up my elevator job. Two years. I invested myself in it. You wouldn't understand the commitment I have, man. A child, Jack, you're a child. You ruin a man's life and then you think you can walk away? You got blinders onto the world. But I got your attention now, didn't I, Jack? <laughs> why, did, why didn't you just come after me? Uh, now you're getting a swell head. This is about my money. The money I'm uh, due, which I will get. $3.7 million, man. That was my original sum plus interest compounded quarterly and expenses. None of this had to happen, Jack. I hope you realize that. That bus driver could have gone home to his wife and children tonight. How long do you think it'll be before they start worrying about him? He's so late coming home. When I, when I find you, man, I'm going to kill you all over. Mm, pop quiz, hotshot. There's a bomb on a bus. Once the bus hits 50 miles per hour, the bomb is armed. <laughs> if the bus drops below 50, it blows up. What do you do? What do you do? I'd like to know where, what bus that is. You think I'm going to tell you that? Yes. Oh, very good. Now, there's rules, Jack. We have to do this right. No one gets off the bus. If you take any of the passengers off, I will detonate it. If I don't get my money by 11 a.m., there's also a timer. Well, we can't pull that kind of money in time, man. Oh, focus, Jack. Your concern is the bus, man. Don't try to call. You'll find their radios down. It's number 2525, running downtown from Venice. It's at the corner of Lincoln and Pico. Should be heading onto the freeway right about now. That was on the sun. Tweet us your answer at C-A-R-N-Y so that was understudy like the theme song says we did two characters who did not originally do that scene they and you try to guess what characters we were attempting to do and uh, what movie that that is from if you get any of those right uh, we will dress up in uh, you can pick one of us to dress up in high heels and a dress <laughs> we've waited so many years to dress up in high heels and tweet us the answer uh, to us on twitter if you're still on that thing at uh, c-a-r-n-y couch oh man the, the, <laughs> dot com. I put dot com in the Twitter handle. I gotta say the uh, slash pub the text. Slash uh, <laughs> no, no, but the the text and my knowledge of of the original actor was really fighting the impression for me.
And then your impression was really fighting my impression because <laughs> I was trying to do. <laughs> You're like, yeah, man. No, man. Wait, I'm saying, man. I'm the guy who says, man, man. Okay. Yeah, so, I don't know about that, man. So the, the other thing that we talk about here is what's it? What's it? What's it all about? What's it all about? Which, I mean, I guess I guess I haven't even really considered what this movie is all about. I was just thinking about all the other great things that I like about it. Um, what is this movie all about, Brady? I mean, you know, it's interesting with, like, muscular storytelling like this. A lot of the, the greatness about it is its immediacy. Uh, you know, it's, it's great um, because of its construction in a lot of ways, which is not an about kind of thing. It's really kind of an in-the-moment thing. But I think there is a cool subtext here that I was picking up on. And it's in, like, the really kind of, like, cruel way that they're playing this woman at the start. And, like, you know, words like gaslighting came to mind. And kind of, like, if you consider the 60s as this time of, like, awakening and empowerment for people on the fringes of society, including women, um... Like, if you consider it in that context, I think it is kind of about uh, sexism versus empowerment. And, and like we were saying, like, so much of the movie, so much of every little detail is, this thing happens, who does it give power to? Yeah, this I, thing I was going to say power is one of mine, but I've got another one, so go on. But, go on with your bad self with power. But, you know, I, I think um, there is a rich subtext here of feminism, of, like, you know, the way these men are coming in, like, they're, they're just walking into the apartment at times, just pushing her around. She has no agency, no power, and it, it is the story. Yeah. Like, at the beginning, she says, come in, whenever yeah. somebody knocks at the door. Later on, it's just knock, knock, open. Hey, it's Mike. It's just yeah. like, I just met you, like, two hours ago. Like, <laughs> I could be naked. Uh, yeah, you <laughs> did. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, it's not only that they're not respecting her, it's that, like, she's not even relevant to them. Um, she's just this kind of collateral a, a damage. with some information that yeah. they think they need. Yeah, this thing that needs to be kind of pivoted around. Um, and the story arc is her gaining more and more power. So, yeah, I, I think there's a cool, you know, a cool feminism subtextually. Or maybe not even that subtextually. I mean, it's, it really is, like, the story about a woman an underestimated woman that uh, getting power. Yeah, well, I mean, those motifs, uh, like in the music that I noticed, uh, I, I boxed a few of them. Let me see if I can reiterate where that happens. Uh, um, uh, that's a that, that's a that. Uh, um, well, first, well, it's interesting when you say power because there's the whole thing at the beginning with Gloria, right? Mm -hmm. And we gloss over it in the plot synopsis, but again, watch the movie, <laughs> even though we will yes, spoil it all for you. Anyway, um, that's why you should watch it, so we're not spoiling it. Anyway, um, uh, but there's the whole thing where Gloria, who's having a hard time because like, her mom's split again, her dad's split again, mm -hmm. like, she's just kind of in the apartment or around or this and that, and she's, yeah. she's helping out, like she's going to do grocery shopping for her and stuff like that, and, um, you know, uh, kind of her emotional tantrum where she starts throwing stuff around and then poor Susie has to, like, bend over and blindly pick it up mm -hmm. and not know if anything's broken and stuff shows her vulnerability. Right. Um, I mean, she's vulnerable to, like, a 14-year-old child. Yes. Um, like, that's how vulnerable she is and how, like, 
difficult of a position that she's in, and sort of when she's trying to tell Sam not to not to leave because a woman's been murdered next door, like literally in the parking lot over there, they found her body. Like that's another indication of vulnerability. So yeah, it's about power and it's about vulnerability. I would also say it's just it's about um, the you know, and you know this is maybe a cap at but the medium <laughs> of film and the way you can do things with film um, yeah. that you can't really quite uh, do anywhere else. Like for instance, the note that I had about the foley, like we just didn't foley the movements of the guys, and it makes them seem very silent. And, again, that's a way of leading the audience into the suspension of disbelief that's necessary for this. Because that, that, it, it is a hard sell, and it's done expertly. Mm-hmm. Um, let me see. Uh, and also, you know, I know I might be being a stickler on that. Maybe people wouldn't notice because in modern filmmaking, you know, they don't really do the dissolves for passage of time. But definitely in a 60s film, if you just cut to the next scene, I remember we rewound like three minutes. I'm like, wait, let me see if this scene is happening directly after it or not. And we rewound and I'm like, okay, so it is happening directly after. And I'm like, "Mm, but it's clearly not because in the dialogue they're telling us it's not. But Mm -hmm. it's disorienting to me to watch a movie from the 60s and just have it do a hard cut to the next scene. Yeah. Um, And and I, I just immediately go, no passage of time, okay. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. um, but you know, like that's another way of making us the audience like feel vulnerable uh, maybe th- that yeah. filmmaking element makes us feel vulnerable if you're sensitive to that um, uh, there's vulnerability in um, Barbara is it Barbara? Oh, Susie? Gloria, sorry. Oh, Gloria. Uh, as well I mean like uh, you know when Susie says she's sorry for calling her names it's like is anything broken? she's like uh, I only threw unbreakable things. I learned that from Daddy. <laughs> um, so her dad's obviously kind of going uh, into sort of. Um, oh, I remember another thing that it's all about that I said I'd talk about. Okay, um, but yeah, sort of like you know, um, here's here's how you manage your volatility. <laughs> Don't throw glass. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> There's just a box in here, and I don't really know uh, where it fits in, but it's just like Alan Arkin's old man, uh, uh-huh. uh, Thorpe, no, uh, wrote, wrote coming in. It's just like, I'll fix him! I'll fix him good and proper! That's right, I just wanted to say that. Maybe that'll be the draft. Um, <laughs> the uh, low-grade technology, techno-thrillerism, um, yes, those things. But I guess, um, and I didn't write this down, so I'll just have to shoot off the head um, of my, the head meaning my head. Um, to shoot off your head? <laughs> no guns in this movie, not possible. Um, <laughs> wait, are we doing this right after uh, Shoot 'em Up? Uh, yes. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Lots of guns in Shoot 'em Up, no guns in this no movie. No guns, we needed a break. <laughs> <laughs> um, but let's put it this way. Uh, I think that you could definitely classify a lot of these characters. Not the Audrey Hepburn character. She seems to be maybe the most uh, sane of all the characters, right? Mm-hmm. Um, she's just a woman who's suffered an accident and is doing her damn best to deal with it. Uh, yeah. Deal with being blind. She's trying to get um, her life back together. Sam's kind of got the, the sort of hero complex. He's like, oh, okay, I'm going to marry this woman that I rescued. 
Yes. But we can gloss over that. I find it interesting about Mike, uh, Carlino, and um, Rote. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's this thing, it's like, even when she realizes that Mike's bad, she's still trying to pry, like, the decency out of him. Yeah. Um, so it's almost like Mike is, I'm not quite sure where to put him on the spectrum. Let's put it this way. Carlino has mentioned uh, several times of being like, uh, okay, bad man, like, when they tell him to go kill uh, Thort, or, um, Thort, <laughs> Rhodes. <Rope. laughs> <laughs> they tell him to go kill Rode. They flip a coin, and he gets the coin. Oh, yeah. Although, Mike said that. I don't recall them flipping the coin. We might just have not seen it. We might not have seen it, or maybe they didn't flip a coin. Maybe it was just assumed that Carlino's a bad man. <laughs> it's possible. Um, because they do talk early on, like, um, like, Carlino goes like, do we hurt anybody? Like, he doesn't ask, do we get to? But he doesn't say, like, do we have to? Right. <laughs> and uh, Rhodes is uh, basically like, no, you know, you don't need to. Um, you don't need to do that. I like doing that but personally. Then, but then also when it's like, hey, where's Rote right now? Ah, oh, he's off beating up old one. Like, there's a tendency that he has that it's almost like he likes to do violence. Um, so... Carlino? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, he seems to be... He's a little more vicious. ...referred to as that person. He's the, he's, the, he's the heavy. He's the one who does the violence. So let's call him sociopath. Uh-huh. Uh, like, doesn't feel... But let's call uh, Rote psychopath. Uh, yeah. Because, uh, like, he doesn't have any remorse or really care about anything. And it's almost like when he's dying, he's just like, well, I, I've got to kill you because you got me. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, I've already got the drugs. And stuff. Like, he could just get out of there and get fixed up by a veterinarian or whatever. But no, he's got a killer. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> so, and then let's call uh, uh, Gloria uh, Borderline. Like, for the reasons that I said before, she's been abandoned. Oh, the, we, this is, I see, this is, uh, you're doing the diagnosis. Yes, she's been a, a, abandoned, and she does have these emotional outbursts that then flip quickly to, like, like, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, but you called me those mean things, and it made me fly off the handle, and, mm-hmm. oh, I shouldn't say things like that to you. Okay, I love you, and you're pretty. Like, that, that's kind of, like, textbook. Uh-huh. <laughs> so... Yes, I think it's also about broken people and their various different levels of brokenness. Cool, yeah, to, to, that's there. To put that there. Can, can we flesh that out, Can you think of anything to flesh that out? Do I got any boxes to flesh that out? No, I mean, I think you Alan Arkin is definitely evil John Travolta from Greece, which I put down, <laughs> which is an indexical reference because Greece didn't come out until 1978. This is 1967, okay? Yeah. <laughs> Fair. Um, um, yeah. I'd like to be more articulate today, but apparently I'm not. Uh, no, no, you're doing well. <laughs> um, well, shit, I talked about all my dramatic irony. I talked about uh, uh, techno-thrillerism. I talked about my, my psychological mumbo-jumbo. I talked about... You got anything else you want to talk about? Oh, I mean, I figured I'd just save the last little giblets until after Metacritical... Uh, just say a few things before we go to our conclusion. Yeah, let's do Metacritical. Yeah. Let's do Metacritical, man. Let's have to be that hard. <laughs> yeah, me. Me, 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 me. 
And me, 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 me is my is my Jay Leno, by the way. Me, 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 me. Now I can never do that for. Um, you, you hear for about this? You hear about this? You hear about this? That doesn't be that hard. You know, you get lit on fire. <laughs> Me, me, you fucking me, me. ride a motorcycle and there's a chain. You didn't see the chain. You get close line <laughs> off the motorcycle. You break, you break your collarbone. You break your knee. Um, yeah, you see it up. Poor Jay Leno. <laughs> that guy is a mensch. Okay, let's. Uh, I gotta open it. Oh, I've already opened Metacritic. Cool. Let's play the music. Let's do the thing. Come on, Rob. You're still a producer. There. A Metacritical. Rob's never gonna win a Metacritical. Yeah. Brady's the victor again. Oh, not this time. So not it's time to play. I'm gonna lose today. Metacritical, yeah, it's time. Time to play. Okay, Metacritical, 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 the game where we try to guess the Metacritic scores of five movies. It's golf rules, so if I get closer to the number, my score will be the difference between what I guessed and the actual score, and mm-hmm. you're trying to keep that number low. And what happens if uh, we get a hole-in-one, so to speak? Oh, if you get a dead nuts on? Dead nuts on. What are dead nuts? I don't know. I, I've never heard of that until you just said it, <laughs> but I repeated it instantly. Dead nuts on is in golf when... When you swing and you hit the ball and it hits the, you're right in the nuts. <laughs> Man, that was dead nuts on. Oh, my children are not going to be born now. Uh, no, you get a five-point deduction. Oh, that's that's sweet. Wait, we I tangented it so much. Okay, if you get the score directly on, you get a five-point deduction. Nice. All right, Brady, first movie. Let's uh, go with Hepburn's last movie, and I can tell a little anecdote about my dog. Because everyone wants to hear that. Uh, Where's my like, dog, by the way? Oh, I don't know. She wasn't. She's probably in so, the other room. Y'all were talking. I'm out of here. Audrey Hepburn. Uh, incidentally, after this movie we're reviewing, Wait Until Dark, Audrey Hepburn takes an almost 10-year hiatus to go focus on her, her family, to raise her kids and shit. And she doesn't do that many movies afterwards. Her last one is in, I believe, 88? For Steven Spielberg... A Richard Dreyfus, John Goodman movie called Always. Oh, okay. Um, you said Richard Dreyfus, and you said Spielberg. I was going to be like Close Encounters. And and there's a scene because it's about Dreyfus is like a ghost, a pilot who dies and comes back as a ghost. Okay, so it's like an X Files episode. Yeah, <laughs> and the, and the girl he was into. There's this new guy who's kind of a doofus who likes her, and he's helping the new guy to become a better pilot. So at one point, he starts, like, whistling to help the guy land the plane. And uh, my dog loved that scene because of the whistling. He was really into it. He was just like, Steakman used to whistle like that when he had steak. <laughs> By the way, I'm Steakman. <laughs> uh, All right, so Always, Always is the movie. From the 80s. Well, shit, I don't know it. If it was Close Encounters, I might have a decent enough guess. I'll let you guess first. Spielberg romantic ghost comedy. With I pilots. Mean, you pick the movie. I gotta guess first. I yeah, guess you do have to guess it. How good do you think it is? Oh, am I allowed to say that? Well, I'm asking for help. Okay, <laughs> no, I'll tell you. I don't think it's very good. Um, I think it's like not poorly made, but it's it's kind of a Spielberg. Sixty-seven. A Spielberg stinker. Uh, I'm gonna go with like a fifty. Okay, and this is from nineteen. 19- 
80? I think like 88. Okay, so 89. it might be in Metacritic, it might not be. The Spielberg of What'd it all makes 58? me think. I went with 50. 50, I went with 67. What do we got? What do we got? Do I got always show movies only? There's a lot of always things. Yeah. Always, movie, 1989, 50. Whoa! <laughs> I did it. Dead nuts! Son of a bitch. My nuts hurt. <laughs> this was an unfortunate start to things. You're not winning this time, I told no, you. I know, I know. It's going to be incredible how this all unravels for I'll, me. I'm going to follow Arkin and go uh, Little Miss Sunshine. Little Miss Sunshine. I have a good idea about where that one is. Shit. I mean, I don't know it, but I, I got a good idea. I mean, I'm, it could be really high. It could be lower. Um... Because I think, it, I think it was loved when it came out, and I think time has not been super kind. Uh, it's more a factor of who loved it. Um, I'm going to go with your last guess, a 67. Cool, I'm going to go with 82 then. That'll okay. give us a decent enough spread. Yeah. Okay. Did I type it right? Yeah. Aunshine is not a word. Should be. Okay. 80. Oh, wow. Oh, shit. Okay. So, I I got 11 points on that. You did. But, uh, I, was, but I was down. <laughs> so, you guessed an 82? I was down 23, so. You guessed 82 on that one? Mm-hmm. So, you get only a negative 2. I got a negative 13. Yes. That really helped you. Exactly, I gained 11 points, but I was already down to <laughs> because 50 dead nuts on versus 722. So, okay, I'm 11 off. Pick something with a big spread, Brady. Pick something with a big spread. Pick something that you, that you that could be great, could be pick a oh, okay. shittier movie. <laughs> okay, big spread, huh? Big spread. Yeah, do like you did the first time. Pick a shittier movie. Easy on me. I'm winning this time, remember? No, no, I know, I know, I know. Um, <laughs> who's, let's see, who's in that movie? Um... Kinnear, Colette. Uh, I'll go with this because I haven't seen it yet. I'm going to see it sometime this year for 95 as I get to that year. Uh, Muriel's Wedding was uh, kind of Tony Collette's big breakout role. Uh, it's an Australian film. Okay. That's all I know. Okay. Um, and yeah, I have no idea what this will be scored. Muriel's Wedding. Muriel's Wedding. Not very well regarded at 77. Okay. That actually feels like a good guess. Um, I'll just go 80. It's going to be an even number. <clears throat> okay. Uh, Muriel, how do you spell that? M U R E L. Oh, yeah, you got it. M U R I E L. Yes. 63. Oh, I had no clue. 63, so that's. Negative 17 for me, negative 14 for you. Okay, and eight off. All right, this one will be a, a pretty good one, because, yes, it's probably in there, but it probably got a smorgasbord of different years of it. Paul uh -huh. Alan Arkin again, go with Ooh. M.A.S.H. Oh, M.A.S.H., the old school Robert Altman M.A.S.H. Wait, is Arkin in that? Isn't he? No, that's Alan Alda. Oh. <laughs> we can still do it. Wait, is... Is Alan Alda and Little Miss Sunshine? No, Alan That's Arkin Arkin's. is... Okay. <laughs> They're the same person. 
Um, yeah, Alan Alda's cool. Well, I'm going to go with I misunderstood who Alan Arkin is, so I'm going to go with the uh, Hawkeye uh, <laughs> MASH. <laughs> okay, MASH. Um, really, really good movie. Altman, his first, his kind of big splash. Uh, I'm going to say like an 83. It's an old enough movie that it was highly regarded at the time, but it probably didn't age well again. So there's a lot of uh, uh, women ass smacking or whatever. Th- that's true. There is that that scene is so uncomfortable. Um, but then it is kind of like a very like seventy five film. Uh, what I said eighty three. You said seventy five. Yes. Probably is dead nets on and. It came up and then it disappeared. All items, mash, enter. Um, okay, it's coming up in the preview thing, but how annoying. Mash, 1979, 80. 80. Was I guess 83? Yes. Did you guess 83 or 82? 83. 83. Okay, cool. And you guessed, uh, what did you guess? So we need a spread of 10 for your pick. I guess 75. 75. I didn't want to be. I wanted to be eight away from you and get a dead nuts on. Oh wait, here, yeah. Because let me do you the courtesy here of telling you how much you need. I right. need. 13, 38. 11. 38 and I have. Right. I was off by eight before. You need ten. You need ten. I need You're ten. Ten away. Okay. You need eleven to win. Yes. Yes. That is correct. Okay, oh, right, uh, so, MASH. Um, I forget if I have used this movie before, but let's go... Pick something bad. Oh, pick something bad? Yes, that'll give me the greatest possibility, right? Because it's like, is it 30 or is it 50? It's a bad movie that has either Alan Alda, Tom Skerritt, or Donald Sutton. Oh, wait, no, you know what? <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Actually, the movie uh, Mash doesn't have all the. It's uh, it's Donald Sutherland. Oh, he was on the TV show. He's on the TV show. Um, yeah. Well, whatever. I'm whatever. picking. I picked what I picked. Yeah, no. Whatever. It's not a hard and fast rule. We just do that as guidance. It's just guidance. You can just pick whatever you want, man. You can pick that 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 one. Yeah, man. What is it? Well, well played out plan. Well, the simple well thought out plan. Um, oh, Duvall's in it, huh? Okay, Robert Duvall. Let's go with The Judge. What is that? It's a Robert Downey Jr., Robert know. Duvall. <laughs> you said pick something bad. I'm I'm trying to... Yeah, but Judge Dredd would have been <laughs> like a better... <laughs> Robert Duvall's not in Judge Dredd. He's not? No. <laughs> Stallone is. Yes, I know Stallone's in there. I mean, I maybe Robert Duvall's in Judge Dredd. I don't I, know. Sorry, I thought Robert Duvall. I thought Eye Patch. I thought Judge Dredd. I thought Eye Removed. Who <laughs> <laughs> squared that circle? Yeah, that's it. Um, so you okay? You say pick something other than the no, judge. No, I'll do the judge. The judge. You think it's bad? What I is do. it? Uh, I think it's like a fifty. No, no, don't. Okay. Oh, oh shit. Well. <laughs> 
<laughs> I, I was like, what is this movie? It's, <laughs> is it like Mother? Did it come out around the same time as Mother? It's about a big-time city lawyer who goes home to the South where his father, Robert Duvall, is a judge, but he's got, like, dementia or something. Oh, okay. Got it. Question about Mother. Yeah. When I said Mother, wait, isn't there a... Um, the guy made Defending Your Life. Yeah, oh yeah, Albert Al- Brooks. Al- is there an, there's an Albert Brooks movie called Mother, right? Yeah, not you to saw be it. confused with the Darren Aronofsky movie called Mother. That is correct. <laughs> with the you, exclamation point in you, the lowercase m. You and your mother saw the Albert Brooks Mother yes. in theaters. <laughs> That's what I was referring to when I was thinking of the judge. Did it come out around the same time as that? No, this came out in like I don't know, early 2010s. Okay, Judge with Dementia Acts Like Dave in a Court of Law. And you think it's about a 50. <laughs> you haven't guessed your number yet. I haven't. But, um, and, <laughs> okay, I gotta be, uh, I need 11 to win. Yeah. 66. 66, okay. Um, you need 11 to win. Well, no, I'll play it fair. I'll just go with my 50. I'll go with the 50. All right. I don't think, it, I think it's, it's supposed to be bad. It's probably just not even in Metacritic. No, it will be. It's it's recent. Have they caught up? Okay. The Judge. The Judge. I mean, you could also hit it. Big City Lawyer, Hank Palmer, Robert Downey Jr. Sounds right. 48. 48. Okay. Fuck. Well... But through some miraculous scorekeeping error, bank error in your favor, Rob, you won. (laughs) (laughs) Woohoo! Did I? Did I win? You you didn't, but... You want to tally up those scores? Yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll just do a little tap dance and shoe dance over here. Uh, you know, I, I just want to say that uh, I know a lot about movies, okay? <laughs> I went to film school, okay? And uh, Brady Brady isn't the film aficionado, despite <laughs> the fact that he's watched many, many, many more movies than I have and has been working his way through like the entire American movie catalog at a rapid rate over the past <laughs> 10 years. <Okay. laughs> That's all an aficionado is, is someone... Who just spends way too much time on a thing. Okay, so I have a more balanced life than you. Yeah, so <laughs> I'll you, use that for you, the in your, in you your win face. the balanced life. <laughs> okay. A metacritical. I want again. Fuck you. <laughs> you jumped the gun and I didn't even announce the scores. <laughs> what were the scores? Oh, uh, I, I won by like 20 points. You, got, you had 50, I had 30. Yes, right? I went, <laughs> I, I went uh, 11 points in the opposite direction. Okay, I, I was very efficient, very economical, um, much like this movie Wait Until Dark is. Um, I uh, wedged one of my talking points into Metacritical because... Uh, yeah, I was going to talk about Hepburn's last uh, movie with Steven Spielberg's Always. Um, and so, check that off. You guys can't see me right now because I haven't hooked up the camera scan yet, but I'm staring daggers at Brady for beating me yet again. Uh, <laughs> Rob is just hearing, like, underwater, like, whoa, 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 what happened? Whoa, whoa, whoa. As, like, blood drips over the field of his vision. I just saw red. I don't, I don't know why my studio is... Uh, Richard uh, Dreyfus. Figured, filled with uh, the 
Why Brady's shoes are missing laces now? I don't know what that means. <laughs> oh, here's a here's a fun little thing. This is our second Alan Arkin. Can you guess slash remember if you're Rob, what the first one is? Oh, I know all about Alan Alda. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's in the Aviator. Oh yeah, yeah, yes, he's. Yeah, uh, yeah, Howard, Howard, how you doing, Howard? Yes, he he serves Howard Hughes. At, wait, did we watch the Aviator? No, we've podcast? never. No, we haven't ever podcasted that. So what was our first? <laughs> oh, um, oh, do you want me to tell you? Yes. Seven uh, percent solution. Oh yeah, you're right. I forgot we did that one. That was a me while ago. too. That was back in the garage. <laughs> it uh, was not a memorable movie. It was okay. We did it for the the fans the... of Sherlock. Holmes. Yes, they, uh, uh, of Sherlock Holmes. Of uh, not necessarily any of, particular TV not show. Not any particular. Anything. Not, uh, no, disgraced nothing, TV show. Nothing like that that uh, almost ruined my life, uh, which <laughs> subsequently got ruined later for other reasons, which are still to me at this point unknown. Um, <laughs> I will refrain from those statements anymore. Okay, uh, I will stop talking. Well, no, you have to keep talking. It's a podcast. That's true. We don't want dead air. Uh, <laughs> but Alan Arkin, we we like him, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, he's great. Yeah. Um, I'm at a point in my... He's a senator with all sorts of I'm a greater powers that I don't have, but uh, you can subpoena me. You, you know what I love about that scene? <laughs> You're going back to Alan Alda now. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, what do you love about... The the finale of Martin Scorsese's The Aviator. Well, I mean, that wasn't the finale. There was much more film after that. Um, no, no, it's it's basically that happens, and then you have the little... The Spruce Goose. The Spruce Goose epilogue. Oh, yeah, you do have the Spruce Goose. But wait, isn't it kind of intercut with that? Um, or no? No. No, never mind. Okay, <laughs> yeah. yeah, the Spruce Goose is the finale. That's the finale, yes. Um no, uh, what I love about that scene is I went and looked it up, and the, the testimony is available on YouTube, and he actually did say that shit. Cool. He actually did, like, friggin' defend himself, and then, like, just stampede over it, and then just walk out of the room. And I'm like, a lot of people hate billionaires, but fucking good for you. <laughs> like, Oh, no, I mean... Like, they were fucking with him. They, they were. Like, I, I don't like billionaires, but Howard Hughes is a, a fascinating man. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, he was capricious, yes. Uh, he was a bit of a playboy. He probably didn't care too much about the people around him and used a lot of people and did a yeah. bunch of bad things. But also, he, he did a bunch of cool... The, the things that the government did to him um, were not the things that they should... That, they, those were not the things that he should have been persecuted for. There are plenty of bad things about him. Right. He mistreated a lot of people uh, in a lot yeah. of ways. And eh, probably had a pretty monkeyed up brain from crashing his planes a lot. Um, and yes. He blackmails poor Willem Dafoe as a tabloid <laughs> photographer. You ever been to a communist meeting? I mean, and he would have blackmailed Kevin Bacon if he could. We all would do that if we could. <laughs> but I got nothing on him. I got hollow guy on him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess you got hollow guy. Stir of echoes. Okay, so here's the part of the show where we normally go and dibbity-bop, bibbity-boo, and uh, um, play a game to select the next movie. Yeah. But we're not doing that this time, are we, Brady? It's not a normal time. No. We're going to watch no. RRR next week. 
Woohoo! Which is one of Brady's favorite movies from last year. We tried to watch it at his house. I did not give it the proper attention. For that, I apologize, Brady. But I will go no with worries. you to the theater. It's a theater this movie. This week and see it in a place where I can't leave. And I'll just be like, no, I'm, st- I'm, a, I'm a, there's people sitting next to me. I'd have to like be like, excuse me, pardon me, excuse me, pardon me, in order to get out. And I just can't. I can't do My that. My self-esteem issues will not let me do that. <laughs> so I will just pee in my empty soda cup. Uh-huh. And um, you get one of those like colostomy bags that uh, Times Square's New Year's people have to wear because they can't move. <laughs> I think you just use a catheter and you don't worry about the bag. Yeah, I think you get like a little bag. Well, I think you just make sure that that's empty. <laughs> you can go hours and hours and hours without pooping. Oh, we're peeing too, though. Um, yes, I use a catheter for that. Okay, okay. Oh, I see. Colostomy bag. This is what the podcast is the degraded into. Is there talk it's for the poopy about these? So, uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> we don't uh, we don't have anything left for this one, right? Anything, no. Anything no. you want to say? Anything you wish to declare? Uh, no, I think Only col- colostomy bag is my last word, and we, we can go. All right. Well, that was a fun one. I'm glad that we're doing this again. Uh, Stay tuned. Keep listening to us for this year. We're coming up on our 10th year anniversary, uh, it being 2023 and all. So we'll let you know when that happens. Uh, Maybe we'll figure out something special to do. Yeah, and we didn't name drop any people we knew. Sometimes it's not all about you, Matthew Byram. (laughs) Audrey Welch, theme song. (laughs) Carnivorous couch, it happens once a week It swallows us for two hours when we try to sleep It forces us to watch a film about which we then speak Carnivorous couch With Brady and Rob Alan Arkin is definitely evil John Travolta from Greece